Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming today. Uh, I'm Emma Fisher. I'm the Managing Director at Editorial Intelligence. Um, Just to welcome you this morning on behalf of EI and on behalf of our partners, Bupa, The Independent and King's College London, who are kindly hosting us in this lovely room today. I'm going to, uh, in a moment, hand over to Kirsty Lang to introduce the panellists for our first session. Just to briefly mention um, a couple of uh, little points. We do have a Twitter hashtag today if you'd like to tweet and follow others, which is EI Health. Um, and just to also let you know, I'm afraid there is going to be an alarm test that we can't get around between 9 and 10 at some point today. So <laughs> Kirsty may have to just briefly um, hold the session for about 10 seconds. So don't get up. You don't need to go anywhere. <laughs> just ignore it. Um, I'm going to hand over to Kirsty Lang, who, as I'm sure you all know, is BBC Radio 4's front row presenter and has been for the last eight years um, following an illustrious career in journalism, taking her from Today programme to Newsnight and the Sunday Times. Um, And I'll hand over to Kirsty to begin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello uh, and welcome. You're probably wondering why they've got an arts presenter to uh, chair this. (laughs) Um, And I think the idea is that uh, I can ask the really uh, basic non-jargon questions because I don't speak NHS and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of this. Um, Throughout the day, we're trying to address the central issue of delivering more for less in the age of uh, austerity, uh, both in the public and private sector. And, of course, this is set alongside uh, rising expectations uh, by consumers who can now all go onto Google and find out what's wrong with them and demand various drug therapies and so on. Um, And, therefore, the need to personalise care uh, uh, to make it more efficient, uh, tailor it, to make it more appropriate and convenient. So, as the title of this uh, session suggests, we have to grapple with this issue. Um, What exactly do we mean? by personalisation? Uh, to what extent uh, is it happening? Should it even be happening? Is it really what patients uh, want? Um, how much, uh, how should and can patients uh, take ownership of uh, their own healthcare? Presumably some can and some can't. How do we deal with that? Uh, and how is this uh, consumer empowerment uh, affecting um, providers uh, and doctors? And uh, also, what can we learn uh, from other countries and other healthcare systems? Let me uh, introduce uh, my uh, panel now. Uh, at the end, Dr. Natalie Jane MacDonald, who's Managing Director of Bupa Health and Wellbeing, which provides health insurance, workplace health services, health assessments, and dental care to about 3 million people now in the UK. Prior to Bupa, Natalie Jane was Head of Ethics and International Affairs at the BMA, and she was responsible for developing policies on medical confidentiality and informed consent. She graduated from Glasgow University in 1984 and she worked for nine years as a doctor in the NHS. So she can talk about uh, both sides of this debate, public and private. She has an MBA from the London Business School and is currently a non-executive director of uh, which the consumer uh, organisation. 
Christina Patterson is a writer and columnist with The Independent. Uh, she writes on the comment pages about politics and society, um, health. She's comp- uh, campaigned to improve standards uh, in nursing, both in a series of uh, articles in The Independent and in Forethought, a programme uh, she made last year for Radio 4. And she's currently making another programme about nursing uh, for Radio 4 uh, to run on the 27th of November. So we should uh, listen out to that. So two Radio 4 presenters on one panel. <laughs> Never have enough. Um, and uh, last but not least, Professor um, Baroness Elora Finley, um, who is a chair in APBG on Dying Well, a past president of the Royal Society of Medicine, currently a president of the uh, Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. Elora Finley is an internationally renowned expert in uh, palliative medicine and the care of the dying. She was a general practitioner in uh, inner city Glasgow before returning to Cardiff to work full-time in the care of the terminally ill. Um, She works uh, clinically at... um, the Belinda, Belinda, Belindra, Belindra <laughs> Cancer Centre, covering uh, South East Wales when on call. She's at the Mary Curie Hospice in Wales, and since 2008 has responsibility on behalf of the Welsh Government for strategic oversight of all hospice and palliative care services uh, in Wales. She initiated I Want Great Care, which is a dynamic patient feedback evaluation of these services across Wales. Um, empowering the voice of patients. He's also uh, authored a number of books on this issue. She's an independent crossbench peer in uh, the House uh, of Lords and uh, has very strong views, she's just told me, on uh, the new... We were, going to, we were talking about Health Bill, there's no Health Act, <laughs> which uh, I'm sure I can't. Now, um, we uh, are going to try and make this session as dynamic as possible, so it's straight... Um, no, sorry, I got that wrong. Um, each of the speakers will talk for about three minutes, and then we're going to go straight uh, to the floor. So uh, have your uh, questions uh, ready. Alona, would you like to go first? Oh, right, OK, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, when we talk about personal health care, I think there are two things that are really critical to remember. Firstly, we're actually talking about accessing services when you're not well, and disease does not respect the clock or the calendar. People get ill at all times of the day or night, accidents happen at all times of the day or night, and one of the fundamental problems we've got is that healthcare has actually, healthcare services have run on a five-day agenda. That's why in Wales what we've done is change palliative care services to be 7-7 working of all the specialist nurses and 24-7 rotors for all the consultants because it was hopeless trying to provide a service which wasn't there when people needed it. And the second thing is that people don't choose to be ill. And so whilst there is lots of information out there and we talk all the time about choices, the biggest choice that people will really want is to not be ill in the first place. And I think we have to remember that in the backdrop of, of how we are, as professionals, interacting with our patients. There's loads of information. People come with masses of information, but they don't know how to interpret it. And the role of the health professional is to help them interpret it, balance the risks, and look at them in that, in the context of their lives and their families and those people near to them. And understanding in that, it's critically important to recognise that the people close to the patient are also involved in whatever has happened. So you can't just talk about 
personal care for the person in front of you, you have to know who matters to them and what matters to them and what their priorities are in life if you're going to do that. And that means listening. Uh, healthcare professionals haven't been that good sometimes at listening rather than at transmitting information, but we have to listen to what it is that, that people are asking us if we are going to achieve something personalised. That was behind us starting up I Want Great Care because we wanted to know what patients themselves were saying on a regular basis. That has influenced the way that we run the services in Wales and that's changed the way that we run the services. And we've also put up a helpline specifically because sometimes people don't know who to contact if they're worried about care that somebody is getting at one time or another. And the last thing that I, I want to point out when we're talking about costs and efficiencies is that attitude doesn't cost anything. We go on and on about the organisation of services and about the cost of drugs and the cost of procedures, but actually the patient in front of you picks up from your attitude, whether you are caring, whether you are listening to them, and whether you are trying to use your professional competence to the best of, of your ability with them, and also that you recognise that when you're at the boundaries of your professional competence, you can steer them to somebody else who might be able to help them more than you can. Because that's what actually being personalised is about. It's about helping somebody guide through a very, very complex system in a situation that they never wanted to be in in the first place. Thank you very much. Natalie. Thanks very much. Um, so is there personalised care being delivered today um, out there across the UK? Yes, there certainly is. There's some fantastic examples of care in hospital wards and communities and primary care. I see it um, with our dementia residents who are very, very vulnerable and who get very personalised care. But it's not all day everywhere. It's not universal. And I think that's what all of us would want, is that care is personalised to us, that we feel like they're an individual we don't feel that we're processed. And as Laura has said, the people who care for us have an attitude that makes us feel that they do care for us. So if I broaden it out and take it not just from care in terms of caring for me, but also care in terms of health care. So it's, it's about personalised care in terms of the health care that you or I might have, as well as the being looked after element of that care. Then I think there are two main areas or two constituencies really to focus on to try and get personalised care all day, every day, everywhere. And the first is in terms of the role of healthcare professionals and the professions themselves. And I think there is a real challenge on leadership in the professions to be able to deliver that, both in terms of the nursing profession, but from my background, particularly in the medical profession. I think um, when people are delivering goods and services in all walks of life, people work together to achieve an output. I think the health professions are still often too siloed. People don't take a holistic view and are together are responsible for all the care a patient receives. And also there is um, too little um, uh, empathy and listening, as Alora has said, to what patients want. And that brings me to, to, um, to people and patients. And that is that there is a huge imbalance today still between those who get care and those who give care. The digital revolution has had some impact, but actually very little impact on healthcare overall so far. And that uh, patients and those who receive care are... Oh. Gosh. 
uh, our patients and people who receive care are in a, a much more are in a very deferential position, and there is not a level playing field between those who deliver care and those who receive it. They are not truly partners in the care they receive, and that needs to change. And that will take a long time to change um, from where we are today, but uh, but it, it will happen, I think, over time. We, we use a phrase which is that um, patients often often want all the health care I want and no less, all the health care I need and no more. And that's a very opposite phrase in today's world of straightened um, economic circumstances and austerity, in that all the work that I'm aware of that talks to when patients are more involved in their care, are able to make more choices, are more involved in the decision-making about them, that actually, far from being extremely demanding and consuming more care, they consume less care. Because as Laura has said, nobody actually wants to be a patient, and if you don't want to be, in, if you don't have to be in hospital, you certainly don't want to be. So there is real potential by focusing on the role of the professionals and the role of patients to get more personalised care uh, right across the UK. Christina. <clears throat> well, I think I'm here because I've had less than brilliant patient care. Uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer for the first time nine years ago. I was obviously worried I was going to die, and I was pretty worried about the treatment. But I wasn't, at that point, worried about the quality of the care I'd get. It turned out that I should have been. It wasn't just that I discovered the day after I woke up from my operation and I had drips and drains hanging off me that I was expected to get up and get my own breakfast. It wasn't just the fact that the nurses on the ward didn't seem to like the patients or their job. It was the overall incompetence. It was the biopsy results that took six weeks to reach the surgeon. It was the envelope that should have contained a mammogram and actually had an X-ray of an ankle. It was phone calls that were rudely answered. It was uh, letters that were sent after appointments. Um, it was the attitude of staff who kept you waiting for three hours and then A, gave you the impression that they were doing you a favour and B, didn't even seem to glance at your notes. I once saw a plastic surgeon who said, so you've had a mastectomy and I thought, uh, no, actually I haven't, you know, and I think you might have looked that up. When my breast cancer came back three years ago, I thought things would be better. Huge amounts of money had been spent on the NHS in that period, and there were lots of spanking new buildings and lots of new nurses, actually. On my first day at the one-stop clinic where I went to get the diagnosis, I hoped not confirmed, but as it happened, confirmed, it was pretty clear they wouldn't be. Of the, I think it was, six appointments that had been made for biopsies, mammograms, scans, etc., it turned out that five hadn't been booked, and one had been booked in a building that was, I couldn't get to because it was miles away. I even ended up with one of the people doing the scans actually screaming at me in front of the waiting room, the entire waiting room, when I had just been told I had cancer, that, um, that you know, did I expect preferential treatment? And, and because I, apparently I had slightly upset the nurse because she didn't have a clue what she was doing and had told me five different versions of how the thing was meant to work and hadn't, in fact, booked the appointment she said she'd booked. She said the nurse was taking the rest of the day off because she was feeling upset. And I thought, well, I've just been told I've got cancer and you're screaming at me. And, you know, but anyway, that apparently was fairly normal. 
Someone told me about something called patient choice, which I hadn't heard of, which meant that apparently you could choose a better hospital. So I did. And I thought things would be better. Um, And at first they were. The surgeons and the medical staff were truly fantastic. Receptionists were great, polite, lovely. Letters for appointments arrived before appointments, which was fairly miraculous. And the staff, when you got there, were polite. But the morning after my eight-hour operation, when I had a breast removed and a big chunk of flesh and blood vessels taken from my stomach to go in the gap, Dieppe flap it's called, um, after the guy who'd been looking after me for the night disappeared, I suddenly realised that things were not going to be better. I was meant to have my blood vessels checked every 15 minutes because it's a pretty risky operation and they don't know, you know, there's a very risky period when you, you don't know if it's going to work. And um, for two, nobody came near me for two and a half hours. And when a nurse did, she was A, very flustered, B, very rude, and C, didn't have a clue what operation I'd had. And this was the nurse who'd been allocated to my care. I have to say that over the next few days, I, I really felt I was in a kind of hell. Actually, what I thought of was Passchendaele. You know, I thought of, I really thought of those First World War poems where people were screaming out in pain. Obviously, we were not on a battlefield. But everyone around me had cancer. Everyone around me had had operations. Most people were in what medical staff like to call serious discomfort. And we were treated with something like contempt. People would press their buzzers and nobody would come. I would end up, you know, I could hardly walk, but shuffling down the ward to try and find a nurse to help the old lady next to me because nobody was. I could see that my, the other patients around me also felt absolutely abandoned and alone. And it was, you know, unquestionably the worst period of my life. That was in a very, very good hospital. It's actually one of the best hospitals in Europe. I think it was a bad ward on a good hospital. I think the staff... I didn't actually dare complain. I think most people don't dare complain. My uh, complaints emerged by accident when somebody told me... when someone visiting the hospital, a a visiting nurse, asked me about what my experience had been like, and I told her. And I said, please don't tell anyone, because I've got to have more operations, and I can't bear people being any more horrible to me than they've already been. She, in fact, was so shocked she did tell someone. I then heard from the director of nursing. I wrote an account of what happened, and I think they responded very well, and I imagine that ward is now a lot better. Unfortunately, two weeks after I was in there, I got a serious infection and had to go right back on it after I'd complained, (laughs) which I wasn't really expecting and which wasn't ideal, but there you go, that's life. Um, When I was lying on that hospital bed, I thought, I have got to do something about this. This is just not acceptable that we are paying our taxes for a system that treats us so appallingly when we are at our most vulnerable And so I did. Um, I've written columns about it in The Independent. I made a programme called Forethought about um, my... Well, it wasn't just about my experiences. It was about nursing that came out last year, and it's been repeated a fair bit. I'm making, as Kirsty said, another documentary about nursing. And in April, I did a big campaign, a big series of articles in The Independent about nursing in particular and looking at what might have gone wrong how this might be addressed and I interviewed Anne Milton, the Under-Secretary for Health and I I came up with a manifesto for better nursing. 
Clearly, this isn't just an issue of nursing. Um, what I just talked about here is a whole range of you know, incompetences and bad attitudes. Clearly, also, there is plenty that is wonderful. You know, I have met fantastic surgeons and staff and nurses who have gone the extra mile. And I remember when I, when I came round for that eight-hour operation, a nurse smiled at me. And, you know, to me, she will always be like a kind of angel in my life at a time that was like a kind of hell. I've had hundreds of emails and letters from people who said they've also had truly terrible experiences. Now, I think according to the Royal College of Nursing, they would say this is quite a small percentage of the overall picture. I think one can wrangle about statistics. Personally, I think most people don't complain. I think they don't have the nerve. They think they've got relatives in the hospital. They don't want their relatives to be treated any worse than they already are. I don't have any experience of private health care, so um, I can't make any comparisons. And I haven't been treated abroad, so I can't make comparisons with that. Clearly, with the NHS facing obesity, diabetes, the challenges of an aging population, dementia, you know, we've got a time bomb ticking, and I don't know how you address that. But I do know that with the situation as it currently is, there are simply too many of us whose care in the NHS just isn't good enough. Sina, thank you very much for sharing that very upsetting uh, experience that you had with us. Before I open up to the audience, I just want to go back to all the panel very briefly with one question, uh, which I think we need, we, we, we need to define the, the terms of this discussion. It, and, and we're talking here about personalising patient care. I mean, ideally, what should that mean? What does this phrase mean? I, I think what we're talking about is having, we're back to attitude, an attitude that the person in front of you is important, that they matter, that they are of worth, whoever they are, whatever's wrong with them. And actually, one thing that I've begun to use in teaching is saying to people, is it good enough for your exactly. mum or exactly. your brother or your sister or your child or whatever? And if it's not good enough for your mum, it's not good enough for anybody else. And we have screeds of standards written and so on, but actually, each individual person has got to take ownership for their actions at every level because until they do, the attitude that patients experience will not improve. And once the attitude is better, then actually the rest follows because people become focused on the person in front of them, not on what their role is in their job. Natalie? Yes, I'd endorse that. I think it's. Uh it's about treating people as, as people who have illnesses rather than as cases. And with the growing burden of long-term and chronic dis diseases, as well as all the problems associated with mental health, it's treating the person as a person and applying the care, whether it's medicines or treatments or surgeries, or looking after them in a way that is holistic and takes into account their individual circumstances and doesn't make assumptions about what they might want or need on the basis of those that are, that are giving the care. So it's quite a hard. It's, it's not. A, it's not an, an easy thing, I think, um, to to deliver. Um, Particularly not in the age of austerity. No, but I would agree with what uh, both Christina and Alora said that actually you can't defer the responsibility for this happening always to somebody else, to the system, to government, to politicians, to managers, to doctors, whatever. Ultimately, it starts with individual people and their individual behaviours each day and the roles that they do. And that of itself would have a, a huge impact. 
as well as paying attention to the systemic things that get in the way of really committed people with very high standards and the roles that they do, being able to deliver the best care in a, in a way that does personalise it. So, Thank you. Christina, have you wanting to add? Um, I'm not really sure I have. I was going to say exactly yeah. the same as right. you about, about the um, uh, is it good enough for my, my mum. Um, I, do think, I, I do think that it comes down to, to responsibility, but um, I also think it's... I mean, I just find it baffling. Why do people have to wait three hours? Why does someone send an X-ray of an ankle? Why is there such a sense of... Um, it's, it, it doesn't matter. I, don't, I think it is about caring at every level, the administrative staff and the receptionists and, and the nurses and, of course, the doctors. And I think, ultimately, what it all comes down to is culture. And culture doesn't cost anything. I mean, it's not quite the same as attitude, but, it's, but you know, cultures are set from the top. And, um, and I think, unless that is addressed in every single ward and in every hospital and in every NHS trust and in the NHS overall, then we're going to have a problem. Thank you. Now, uh, I'd like to open up to uh, questions uh, from the audience. Please say uh, who you are, and if you want your uh, question addressed to a, a, a particular person, or indeed the whole panel. Sir. I'm Sandy. It's on. Is it on? Okay. Yes. Um, I'm Sandy Walkington, um, no fixed abode. The question I was going to ask was, how much damage the compensation culture has caused. I mean, the experience I had, the father of a friend of mine died in the most appallingly squalid circumstances. I read Christina's articles, by the way, and they resonated so strongly with me. And he died in the most appallingly squalid circumstances. He was a war hero. And the nurses were celebrating at the other end of this appalling mixed ward because it was National Nurses Loving Week or something, and there was cake and sparkling wine brought in and balloons, and they were all celebrating at the nurses' station, and this man died, and it was truly ghastly. But then to actually... And I tried to help my friend, and we wrote to the hospital, and we challenged it, and we wanted to meet the chief executive, and you had this sense that they were so defensive because they were scared stiff of legal action. And it wasn't about legal action. It was about just having a human conversation. Mm -hmm. And it took us ages. We were fobbed off with the wrong people, and we stuck to it. And eventually, we got to meet the director of nursing, who you know, had the courtesy to cry. I mean, that was you know, something that she cried. Mm -hmm. But she just had this sense. And we didn't pursue it all the way, because I talked to another friend of mine who tried to fight for her father after he had died. And she said, just don't do it, because you're dragged through the mire, because they're so determined not to accept legal liability. They will do anything to humiliate you, to make you feel small, to stop you going forward. Now, if one could just take away that compensation stuff, so they know it's not about finance, there might then be a better chance for a human conversation, which is what people just want, I think, in those circumstances. Good question, Alina. I mean, how, how does one deal with that? Well, thank you for asking that, because you've highlighted a really important area. People that make it complaint, as you said, actually want something done much more than being after money. And, and so the, the money side and the fear of litigation has, I think, made, made a, almost a risk-averse um, view to engaging in that conversation. 
you have to somehow get a system that turns it on its head. And the one thing that we found using dynamic patient feedback with I Want Great Care is that the feedback from the individual patient to the individual team has altered behaviours. Because the, some of them most resistant to change have seen bits of feedback and thought, oh, that was the patient. And this has been anonymized, but sometimes they... So can you just explain to us how it, how it okay. works? The patients just, the, every patient just gets given a, a card and they can fill it out if they want to or not. It's a bit like when you're in the hotel and you get the little card by your bed. And it's just about nine parameters generally, which was where you listened to, did you trust the people, were you treated with respect? Um, was your care timely? Were there unnecessary delays? Was it clean? And so on. Very simple. And they score 0 to 10. And a little box for free text. And that free text, just a couple of sentences usually, is really rich data. It was that that helped us change the nurses to go over to seven-day working. Because one comment was, this is a fantastic service in the week. What a pity there's nothing at the weekends. And we gave this to the person who was the most resistant to change and said, you're obviously doing a fantastic job. What a pity that it's not available at the weekends. And she read it and the penny dropped. And she now advocates seven-day working. So it is a, it's an attitude and changing attitude. The other thing is that we have to be open to listening to what people say. And I'm afraid that I do think there is a risk aversion in terms of culpability but we can't begin that unless we shed that discussion and say, I want to know what you think. And if something isn't right, well, we'll try and do something about it. And if we can't do something about it, then we need to explain to you why we can't. If I can just make a little comment about the, the party on the ward, because it, it is a bit of a bugbear of mine. I do think that it's deeply disrespectful and it's like at Christmas when you see staff walking around with flashing Christmas tree earrings and things. Mm -hmm. Totally inappropriate. The person who is there ill does not care two hoots about celebrating. They want to get well. And when you're in work and you're working professionally, then you park that, you celebrate after work. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that, that people have got muddled up too about the boundaries of where they're being professional and engaging in work and what they do out of work. And once those boundaries get blurred, that's when people start talking over patients about what they did at the weekend and what somebody said and so on, and forget that no, all of that is part. That's for after work, or that's for down in the tea room. When you're there on the ward, in outpatients, in the surgery with the patients or in their own home, you focus on whoever is there in front of you. I mean, it's almost as if the nurses' station is now a kind of open plan office where you, know, where you just kind of get on with your work. You think, actually, no, you know, I'm lying here and I've just had my breast chopped off and I'm feeling bloody awful, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and the, I can't believe the conversations that they have as well. I mean, I, I heard two nurses bitching at the end of my bed about the patients and I, I just thought, you know, go yeah, away. Dreadful. Let's just get back to, 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 the, to this question. And Natalie, can you come in on this? I mean, is, you know, how much damage uh, uh, has the compensation culture done to this, this sort of fear, if you like, of, 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 uh, that there is in health services of, of receiving criticism or listening uh, yeah. to criticism? I think um, it's often used as a reason why people don't get the proper attention that they, that they deserve. 
and I think it's overused. I think it's overused in medicine, in terms of defensive medicine, and I think it's overused in the context of where mistakes or things go wrong and complaints are raised. My experience over many, many years is that you have to you have to be interested in improving the quality of your services on an ongoing basis, so that you are curious about it and you do the sort of surveying and so on that uh, Elora describes, and that with very, very few, very, very tiny exceptions, patients and customers don't start off being difficult. They are made to be difficult when. Um, they raise things that need to be addressed and they don't get um, the basic attention it deserves of being listened to um, uh, and, and so on. And you kind of get what you deserve, actually, in this, in this sort of thing. Um, so I think that uh, the, there is clearly a, uh, an issue about um, compensation um, in all walks of life, including healthcare. But I don't think it's reasonable that that's then used as an excuse for, on a day-to-day basis, um, quite simple things being done to address legitimate um, concerns or complaints that people have. And usually they have them, and that's my experience uh, as well, usually they have them because they want to make it better for future patients. They don't want other people to have the same experience. Um, were you ever surveyed, Christina, when you were... No. You never got a... <laughs> well, no, except, except that on, on my last day on, on the ward... Um, on that particular operation, this really lovely nurse was on the ward who had a badge saying something like nurse education, and I thought, oh, how nice, you know, smiley, sweet, came round, how was your experience? And I said, oh, well, actually, you know, not great, and then her jaw dropped. Um, but nobody, nobody ever asked me for formal feedback, no. And in fact, it's one of the things I, I included in my manifesto, and I'm very pleased to hear that you do that. I think every single patient should be asked, even if it's just a 10, you know, and, and it's very simple question to do. It's not complex, 30-page questionnaires. No, no, it's a no, handful no. of questions it's a across it's a, a minute, yeah. and it's up to the patient or their relative. Yeah. And what we've done in, in the cancer centre is that we use one of the secretaries to go round because, rather than one of the professionals because she's mm. much less threatening. Mm. And if people have difficulty writing, she'll just help them fill it out. Mm. But we just want that feedback. And it's been really helpful. The great thing is that it's reinforced good practice. Yes. Because actually for a lot of the teams, the scores are so high and they're so much better than other services. They feel good about themselves. That this team saying, hey, we're doing really well. Yeah. And I just say to them, yeah, but you know, if you're high up, you can fall a long way. You've got to keep it up. Mm. You've got to be examples. You've got to keep driving it up. Mm. And the other thing is we're using the number of returns as a quality marker. So services that have very low numbers of returns, we're saying, hang on, why are you not, why have you got so few we can understand that lots of patients just can't be bothered and don't want to and we can't push them. But if they're way low, services that have got very few, they're probably frightened of asking the mm-hmm. patient's view. Mm-hmm. And we're saying to them, no, that's a quality marker. You need to be engaged in mm-hmm. that. And actually, it'll affect your money next year. But I, I think it also has to be... I think that feedback has to be reflected publicly in some way because if people... If it's just about budgets, well, the sister's not no, going to no, care no, very much not, about no, that. No, I mean, I'm sure for you it my isn't. My stick is that I can say... We're making quality markers, so your contract will be under threat. Right, yeah. If you yeah. don't do it. Mm. Gentlemen at the back. Hello, uh, Andrew Gore from Corbin Networks. Building on that discussion, uh, would you say that the top-down target of waiting times or cancer care or stuff like that 
are really helping or building on the points you're talking about, the personal feedback is the more important aspect and focusing on the patient rather than how many people have we treated with cancer this month or what's the waiting times. Would you, would you agree with that sort of comment? Okay, I, I, I'm, it's good to have standards. Again, I'm sorry I'm banging on about Wales, but that's where I work and that's what I've got responsibility for. Okay, great. <laughs> um, the, we, we've said that any patient who is in the palliative phase of their illness, who has un, symptoms that are not responding at all within 48 hours, those healthcare professionals must seek advice from somebody and for the specialist services we've said they must respond within 24 hours to an urgent referral. Doesn't matter what day of the year it is. If it's urgent, they must respond to it. It may be to give the price or whatever. So some targets are good because actually that stops some of the you know facts in a referral will look at it on Monday morning type of stuff. That all of that has stopped happening. Some of the targets have just been overinterpreted, I think, and certainly A and E. Where you've had them, it has made people more efficient, but it has put sometimes inappropriate pressure on staff that someone's been waiting, had been waiting X number of hours. When actually, if you've got a room full of really sick trauma patients, that becomes inappropriate. But it may be appropriate at a quiet time. So it's about interpreting them, really. You do need drivers, though, and you do need some way of getting people to become more efficient, more patient-focused. I think, for instance, now that we're giving patients copies of the letters that are written on them, that has been a huge improvement. And I know, as a patient, I'm really glad that I've got copies of the correspondence that's been written about me I do wish my GP would let me have my own blood results, but that's another battle. Um, but it, you, do want, you do want to just have that information because you can read it through and think about it and look things up yourself. So that kind of dialogue is important. So some of those targets are really good. It's just about not being overzealous. Natalie, do you have targets in Bupa? Yes, we do. Uh, we have top-down targets and then we have local targets and they can be very... Um, stretching and uh, hard to achieve and sometimes we don't even know how we're going to achieve them but they are designed to try and create the right kind of culture where we're striving to be the very best that we that we can be so I'd agree that top-down targets or targets that come from the top are not inherently a bad thing um, but they are only part of the story and they have to be accompanied by a whole lot of other things um, uh, alongside and I think uh, the top-down targets in the NHS affected over time were part of affecting big improvements in people getting treated more quickly. However, the, the risks are is when they're used savishly and they're used in a kind of binary way, and particularly in a complex system like the health services, you get this sort of cost shifting, so where, um, and you get game-playing, where people manipulate the achievement of the targets uh, in order to get their bit right, rather than having a, a more end-to-end -end, um, sort of patient uh, journey view. So in, in good systems, targets are used in a way that takes into account those sorts of risks, and they're not the only um, tool to use. Um, they're quite simple, and they can, they're good for slogans often, uh, uh, but you have to be careful about how you deploy them. But they're not inherently a bad thing, far from it. Question for the lady in the second row here for the mic. I've got a question for it, but I think 
<laughs> Always better to have the mic. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr Stephanie Bowne. I work at the Medical Protection Society. And those of you who, who don't know about the NPS, we, we basically we indemnify GPs and specialists against clinical negligence claims, not claims arising out of hospital practice. And we also represent our members, doctors and dentists, who face complaints, including complaints to the General Medical Council and any other kind of complaint arising from their professional practice. It has long been our advice, when something goes wrong, to our members that they must be open and honest and apologise where an apology is appropriate and to tell the patient or the person who is raising concerns what they are going to do about it. But we understand, because we hear about it, some of the obstacles that doctors, that members feel in carrying out that advice. And it's not so much the fear of litigation for individual practitioners. It is a fear of professional damage, fear of, of investigation by the GMC. That is the, the, the professional regulator who can take you off the medical register, who can put you through the pages of the press before you've even had any finding made against you. That is a major obstacle. Um, and it's not helped by last week or two weeks ago, the GMC reported a 23% increase in the number of complaints against doctors. One in 64 of us will now be the subject of, a, of an investigation by the GMC, more than any other healthcare professional. And there are real issues, I think, about morale within the medical profession. I was so deeply saddened to hear about your experience and what I'm hearing is a lack of um, professional pride in delivering the best of service and a lack of personal responsibility for doing so. But I think really my question is going to be about how do we change culture and organisational culture. Um, certainly we must have better feedback from patients, from people who are receiving things. But we must also have staff who are empowered and enabled to raise concerns and act on them. Um, we know that about 60% of our members say they feel that they don't have confidence in the systems. It's particularly bad for junior doctors whose careers can be derailed by raising a, complaint, a, a concern. Um, but it really is ultimately about the culture within organisations and leadership within organisations so that as soon as a concern is raised, you don't have to wait forever before you even have it acknowledged. It's about the speed with which you rescue the situation. You come in and you start and you have that first conversation. Even if you haven't investigated everything yet, you're telling the patient what you're going to do about it and what they can expect. It's, it's getting in there straight away and showing the care and compassion. Um, and, and that has got to come with a change in the environment in which doctors are working. And I question, my challenge is, how do we do that? Because I'm often hearing that you can't change culture, you have to legislate for it. But I've just come back from Hong Kong, where the hospital authority in Hong Kong implemented a process of open disclosure in 2007 and the chief executive identified his advocates and he had them, he had pushback at first but now they absolutely embrace it and they don't identify it as being with the chief executive it's every healthcare professional is, um, is, is, is part of what they do and they're really proud of it and they've done that and they've achieved it.
Christina, I mean, how do you? I mean, this is, this is the crux of the matter, isn't it? How do you change a culture like that from the top? But I, I think I think you can change cultures. Actually, one of the things that I put in my ten was it ten point nursing manifesto, which of course was instantly implemented across the nation, um, is to remind nurses of their duty of candour to report poor care. Now, I mean this. Whistleblowers, obviously so-called whistleblowers, have had terrible time, a terrible time in the NHS, and many have lost their jobs and so on, which is scandalous. But, I mean, this duty of candour thing is really, really important. If, as a medical professional or a nurse or any kind of healthcare professional, you see care that is not up to standard, you should report that, and you should be negligent if you don't. And I think that needs to be... If people don't actually realise that at the moment, then people absolutely need to be reminded of that. In terms of changing culture, it, it, I was going to say it doesn't happen overnight, but, you know, I think if you get good people at the top, sometimes it does happen overnight. But I spent a day at a hospital, well, in, in, in Manchester, and um, the chief nurse there, they were getting very poor results on all kinds of indicators. And um, the chief nurse there, a woman called Jill Heaton, is completely wonderful and she has turned it around now it's a big unwieldy business there are lots of hospitals in the in the trust and I'm sure there are pockets that aren't as good but you know it's things like getting all the staff on the if we're just talking nursing but the same lessons apply in any area um, getting them involved in the assessment process which which you know looks at every single aspect of care getting that those, the results of those assessments on the walls, monitoring things, um, and then having assessment from people coming in, including the chief nurse, the deputy nurse, talking to the patients, assessing all kinds of safety things like that. And then, I mean, this sounds a bit like primary school, but it works. You have a gold, you have a, a gold ward, a bronze ward, a silver ward, and then a nothing ward. And if you're a nothing ward and you're in charge of a nothing ward, you're not going to feel great. And you're going to, you know, up your game and try and get your staff to do better. Now, it's a fine balance between carrots and sticks in any work environment. Frankly, journalism has way too many sticks, and a few carrots would be lovely. But, you know, I think that in, in the NHS, I think that sometimes in the public sector, you know, there is just too much mediocrity and too much kind of, oh, this is fine, and there need to be a few more sticks. So I think, I think you can change cultures. I mean, any of us, I, before I came to the Poetry Society, I ran a small arts organisation. And, you know, I tried to change the culture there. Everyone was incredibly badly paid. You know, they earned about 17, 18 grand. I, so, you know, I don't buy the argument that poor pay is an excuse for bad culture. And actually, I don't think nurses get paid particularly well, but I don't think they get paid appallingly anymore. And I, I think it's all about leadership. Would either of you like to come in on this? Because I've got yeah, several I, other questions. I wrote down three words in response to that. Number one, leadership, <laughs> which is what you finished on. Mm. And the other one is actually auditing what you're doing and auditing the quality of care and the way you deliver care, and uh, as well as other things that get audited. And also having a whole team reflective practice approach where you reflect on what you're doing with everybody in a multi-professional way because one of the problems is you can get silo working between different bits of the profession. And I wouldn't like us in this talk about doctors and nurses to forget that the allied healthcare professionals who can be very, very important in driving up standards of care. Actually, I, I, that was partly why I was so delighted to be physios, because I've seen them drive up standards of care in areas mm -hmm. where other people haven't been able to, um, and it's helpful.
The only thing I'd add is, I want to say more about leadership because I, I agree, is, um, uh, is learning from elsewhere. So learning from others who are doing things well, why is it they're succeeding them or not, and being curious about that. Um, and obviously I, I come from a private sector organisation and I um, think it's very unfortunate that the debate often about the NHS is so constantly polarised between public and private and commercial, as if public must be good and private and commercial must be bad. And not just looking at Bupa, but one of the things that we do is we learn from other industries, other mm. sectors that provide services to people, that have complex systems that require lots of people working together and so on, and find out how they deliver excellence to them. And from that, you can learn and deploy it in your own, your own area. So I think looking out and looking at what others do, either in health or in other sectors, can be really useful if, it, that's a, if that is alongside then really strong leadership from the top of, of setting the ambition um, um, you know, to deliver the best, the best patient care. I've got quite a lot of hands coming up, so I'm going to take three questions in a chunk. Uh, lady in the black jacket there, second row from the back, uh, then followed by this gentleman here in the second row, and gentleman right at the back, and I'll come to you in the next round. <laughs> All right, thank you. So my name is Cordla Janowski. I work for King's College. I actually work with the health schools, including the Florence Nightingale School of Nursing and Midwifery. So I'm very grateful to hear now today where the problem is and a lot of approaches how to change the situation. But when I was listening to your story, Christina, and, and picturing you lying in the bed and going through all this ordeal, I was asking myself, when is it going to change? I mean, when is the attitude going to change? And um, I have the feeling we can't wait too long, so patients can't wait. The other thing I would like to mention is that I have access to private healthcare and I use it quite often because I don't get along in the NHS, so I don't get where I want to. I have personal experience with a uh, cancer biopsy and I just couldn't do it in the NHS, so I had to go private. And the interesting thing is, and this almost intrigues me, that the second you go into private healthcare, you meet more or less the same people you meet in the NHS. It's the same persons, the same individuals, but um, the treatment is completely different. The attitude is different. They are more polite, and you almost ask yourself, how is this possible mm -hmm. that the same people who might be different when I come as an NHS mm -hmm. patient and I pay for the NHS are, seem to be completely exchanged when I come as a private patient? Interesting question. Uh, gentleman here. John Wilden, um, Global Health Futures. Two questions. One, could the panel speak to the words responsibility and competence, both of the patient in terms of responsibility they have to their own health care, and also responsibility, obviously, of the medical profession and their competence, particularly in an area when subspecialization has been so important. Second question is this. Given that at present we, on international tables of uh, cancer care, are somewhere between, depending on which region of the country you're in, between 17th and 23rd. Whereas we were considered around uh, the top 10 in the 1970s and are now in the Eastern Europe group, why we have gone down the tables rather than up? 
the studies I'm referring to are come out of uh, Michael Coleman's leadership uh, group from the London School of Tropical Hygiene and Medicine. Thank you very much. And finally, the gentleman at the back. Um, Neil Gadhock, I, I, until recently I was uh, head of the press office at the Royal College of Nursing, so just to declare an interest. Um, <laughs> Hello. I, I don't work there anymore, though. Um, I just wondered if the elephant in the room is that the NHS in England has to save £20 billion at the moment and how much we can afford to pursue the personalisation agenda, given that um, the NHS in England anyway is having to save about a fifth of its budget. Yep, great. All good questions. All right, let's, um, uh, Natalie, let, let me start with you. Can you answer this uh, question, the first question about why it is when you go and have, uh, go privately, you meet the same people, but you're treated better? Why do you think that is? Uh, partly because the system doesn't have some of the pressures that the NHS does have. We have to acknowledge that. A&Es and a constant throughput um, is very demanding on any on any system, so there are differences. Um, but the ser you're paying for the service, either you are or your employer is paying for the service, and uh, it's all about it's all about you. It, the whole thing is is orientated around that. I'm not sure that always that clinicians are um, completely different in the private sector. I think the ones that are stroppy and difficult in the NHS are stroppy and difficult in the private sector too sometimes. Um, but it is because it's all about you. Um, I think also, uh, and then it allies with the point that um, because we have an NHS and because it's free at the point of need and because it's there for everybody. Except as taxpayers we're all paying. Well yeah, but you don't pay for it when you're, mm. when you're actually using it. What it means is that people don't know much about healthcare in the UK. We have relatively low levels of health literacy. People only become an expert in healthcare when they've got something wrong with them, as I'm sure Christina will attest. You find out a lot. And therefore, I think that leads to an environment where people, they don't even know what questions to ask. We're doing some work with the Patients Association at the moment, um, which is about how do you help people to understand what it is that they should expect when they're having an interaction with their doctor or another healthcare professional. And even these really simple things are not, are not well understood. That's rather, I mean, what do you two think of that? I mean, that's a rather depressing conclusion that if you pay for it, you get better service. Well, well, I, I think I, I'm afraid. I think it sums up almost entirely what's wrong with the NHS, which is the, the, the feeling that you know you're lucky to get it when you have actually paid for yeah. it through your taxes. Actually, unfortunately, quite a few people don't pay for it through their taxes, and I think we probably should be a bit more vigilant about the people who don't pay for it through their taxes. But assuming that most of us who use it do, I think we are often treated. I mean, you know, it's the difference between being a customer and um, you know and a nuisance, really. I, I haven't had treatment privately, but I have on occasion um, seen a specialist who I didn't want to wait months and months to see privately just for one consultation and they and I've seen them on, then seen them on NHS and they have been entirely different both times so I have to endorse that view and you know and it's kind of Miss Patterson and shake hand and there's a lovely carpet and you think that costs nothing that costs nothing why couldn't you do that in the NHS and you've got more time when you yeah went. absolutely you've got more time yeah would you like to come on this, or should we go to the next question? Well, I'll, I'll roll it up later, can I? Yeah. Um, OK, um, let's go to the, uh, the, the, the second question, uh, which is about uh, response... Well, there, there were two in here, actually, responsibility and... and, and uh, Dr John Wilson. The two one, responsibility and competence, both as regards to the patient and uh, medical professionals. 
and uh, cancer care. Why have we gone down to uh, 17 to 23rd in the world tables, uh, down from top 10 in the 1970s? Who would like to uh, take either of those? Um, I'll comment on the, um, the first point about responsibility and competence. I mean, medicine has changed a lot, and uh, doctors now are trained generally and then, and then specialise. It's interesting that health, one of the things that's notable in healthcare is, compared to other sectors, how slow it is to innovate and change. And um, uh, we were chatting, I think, beforehand uh, about um, things like uh, uh, telescopic surgery, arthroscopic surgery, keyhole surgery, and how long that took to be introduced. Um, you've got to have a system and regulation, and it's got to be supported. I mean, you were talking earlier about um, doctors and the GMC, but you know, medicine does have the a great privilege of being um, still um, largely self-regulated as a profession, and it has to take responsibility for the conduct of those that are within it to ensure that they practice appropriately within their competence. And for example, practice the same in the private sector as they do in the NHS, i.e., they pursue the same procedures. Um, again, the system can do it, but then it also comes down to the individuals um, operating within that. I think on patient responsibility. Yes, I mean, so many of the illnesses that we all suffer from today are generated by what we do um, every day. And it can be hard for healthcare professionals when they're dealing with people who won't take that um, step. But we have to create the conditions in which that is possible. Um, so giving people um, information, treating them in a holistic way, understanding the barriers. You know, why do people who have diabetes, why is their diabetic control not good, even though they know that they should take their insulin or manage their diet and so on? Often it's not a healthcare issue, it's about other aspects and things in their lives. And uh, so again, it comes from listening and conversation and dialogue. There's no panacea to it. Cancer care statistics, have you got any ideas why we've slipped down the table so appallingly over the past 30 years? I haven't actually, um, I, but I, I'm sort of baffled by the fact that, as you say, plenty of things that have been introduced successfully in other countries seem to take a long a long time to reach us here. I mean, when I had um, my cancer the first time, I had all the lymph nodes out under my left arm, and none of them were affected, and that now seems to me to have been completely unnecessary. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's staggering that the figure that's often used is that it takes 17 years from an innovation in healthcare to become standard practice. If you think about innovation in non-medical technology, mm. you know, it's... Uh, it's dark, um, the, uh, the contrast. Mm. On? Yeah, I, I will. I think the, the cancer link tables are really complex because the way that different countries register their data and their different healthcare systems is slightly is different. So I'm really cautious about interpreting just in league tables. And if you're a patient coming into the system, you want to know that you're going to get treated well and properly for whatever disease you've got. Um, in terms of the responsibility of patients, I completely agree. You have to understand why people do what they do and why they don't do things. And people have complex reasons in their lives that have driven their behaviours. But there is a danger in saying, uh, well, you know, we'll let you choose uh, mm. to an excessive amount. And that mm. is that you can get a dumping of decisions. I've seen I saw a situation at first hand not that long ago where actually because a patient had been asked about what this person would like after surgery, theoretically all the options, and had chosen one, that when actually that didn't work well, 
the response was, well, that's what you chose. I mean, I just hit the roof when I overheard that comment, because that was totally inappropriate. Um, but you, you mustn't, you can't dump decisions on people. They, it's a bit like people who make birth plans. Anyone who's had two babies know, yeah, all the women in the room are laughing. There's no point making a birth plan. They never work. It's so rubbish, isn't it? You know, whatever, whatever you put in your birth plan won't happen. Guaranteed. Um, but so, so that you have to be really careful in this, in this dialogue to be flexible and review decisions all the time. And it's a bit like riding a bicycle. The healthcare professional on a tandem actually holds the handlebars at the end of the day because the patient does depend on them. They are dependent on them for all the information and they have to trust them. But then the healthcare professionals have to warrant that trust that, that's put in them. Um, just in terms of the cost thing, the 20 billion, I do not want to hide behind money as an excuse for not changing attitudes. Actually, I think there's an awful lot that can be done more efficiently when people take personal responsibility. And if that nurse or that secretary or that doctor says, this is, this is the patient I am looking after and I am responsible for, then things happen. It's the, the sort of view that, well, okay, I've done my bit, I've handed it on, as if we're on some kind of paperwork conveyor belt, which leads to those terrible inefficiencies mm. that you've highlighted. You know, you should be able to pick up the phone now the, and, and get information. We've got another problem over data and data protection that has become so risk-averse that it's now really difficult to get data on patients. So I, in one hospital, trying to get data about the patient or results from another hospital, have to get a whole series of permissions in order to find out whether the patient was anemic a week ago or not. I mean, it is ludicrous. And actually, we have to say that let, let's be risk aware, and occasionally something might leak. But we do need to free up the flow of data within the system, and I think we can get cost efficiencies with it. You do, 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 come back. Karen was good, you didn't agree about very much, but I think we might be able to agree on this. These are statistics in terms of international uh, figures run from by Nicole Coleman, who I know personally, uh, there's an immense amount of uh, work he does to make sure that uh, these figures are correct. The point is, these are five-year survival rates. There are not many things that doctors do uh, agree on in terms of diagnosis. But I, I've said on many occasions, one of the things they do actually uh, agree on is death. The diagnosis of death is usually pretty well agreed between doctors of different countries, plus or minus 24 hours. So these are five years' survival dates. It's no good trying to brush these under the carpet. Uh, these are questions that really need answers. Okay, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to brush it under the carpet at all. I'm just saying we've got different healthcare systems. I know Michelle Coleman as well. I spoke to him about his work, looked, read his papers, looked at what he does. I think it is complex, and I think that if you're going to improve the healthcare system as a whole, then what will follow will be improved outcomes for patients. And patient outcomes matter, not just in cancer, they matter in every part of the system. They matter in terms of if you're taken into A&E, 
whether you end up with a decent scar, particularly if it's on your face. They matter in terms of whether you have an infection after surgery or an intervention or not. So I, I just don't want it to be too sidetracked and too beaten up over a system which is really complex. Cancer gets lots of publicity, of course it does. There are other diseases which don't get as much publicity as they should. Now I'd like to, just going to say, um, one of the phrases that's often used very disparagingly is tick box medicine yeah. or tick box healthcare. Um, but I, I'd make a case for more tick box healthcare in that it links together this point about cancer care and also the question about the 20 billion of cost reduction, which is that a lot of the will contribute to the difference in cancer. Yes, it's sometimes about equipment, so we don't have as much radiotherapy equipment as we should in the UK relative to the number in the population compared to other countries. But it's also about the fact that depending on where you access the healthcare system, your experience might be very different. There's huge amounts of variation in terms of how and when people are referred and investigated and so on. And when you look at that and then you look at the 20 billion that we're trying to save in the NHS and we look at the amount of variation in healthcare that there is, that variation, some of it is because of our differences between patients and it's part of the personalisation, but a lot of it is unnecessary and it's waste. And that waste is opportunity to, to get more from less. But in order to be able to do that, we have to be more systematic, we have to be more standardised in healthcare, we have to have more tick boxes and checklists to ensure that the patient experience is consistent and that it takes account then of individual pre patient preference and, and professional judgement. But so presumably, I mean, please. time is money, isn't it? And, and if you've got, you know, less money, you're going to have less, uh, fewer staff and less time to spend with individual patients. So it is going to impact. No, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, we just did some work last year. We looked at the variation in, in our um, members having a very, very common procedure these days, which is a telescopic examination of your knee. You have a because you've got knee pain or something like that. And we discovered huge variation um, uh, in the NHS. We looked at Canada and other countries, and we looked at our own population. And the rates in the private sector were way higher than the NHS, and we believe that was because um, was significantly driven by um, the fact that it's a fee-for-service. So if you see a surgeon and they do an operation, they get paid. If they don't do an operation, they don't get paid, and it drives over intervention, over treatment. We see it here, and we see it in other countries. But there were also very high rates in the NHS. And not everybody who's having these procedures needs to have them. They're not all being done where there's good evidence to do them. And I don't think it's inevitably the case that, you, that the, the only consequence of focusing on taking cost out of the NHS is that the service must inexorably decline because you must have less people and less service. I think that that's... I think that's a, a, it's not that I'm saying that it's easy, but I don't think that's an inevitable consequence. We're pretty much out of time, but there was somebody over here who put their hand up. Um, this gentleman there, let's... Um, oh, and it's a, uh, let's take two very quick questions, and uh, from you first and the lady in the first row, and uh, then we'll wrap up. Dick from Lean from uh, King's College. It's just a quick question. Uh, we heard a lot about uh, organisational culture and changes in attitude. Isn't it that we really need to change uh, organisational practice and uh, the way the system works? Like, Christina brought the example of uh, shift changes, where obviously there's a problem that uh, the handover doesn't work properly and the next shift doesn't know about uh, particularities of the patient. Similar things happen when you uh, try to make an appointment with a GP. It's very difficult to make an appointment with your GP. You get an appointment with a practice, but 
uh, often you see a different GP. So there's never uh, a system set up that you can build a personal relationship with nurses, uh, with your GP. It takes a very long time. That's, I think that needs to change. It's more practice and organization than attitudes alone. Thank you. And uh, this lady in the red top here. Thank you. I'm Tana Wallen from Clarity Writing Experts. A system, as, uh, an organisation as large as the NHS needs systems and um, the professions within it, the medical professions within it, need their own professional language. That's without doubt. How those can be improved and made more efficient, we can all talk about. But an observation, uh, because we've talked a lot about the culture of the NHS, it's, it just seems to me that uh, the language used to patients, particularly in correspondence, and the language in internal documentation between colleagues are samples of the worst kind of management babblespeak you could ever find. And I think the language, the dehumanised language in the NHS um, is both a symptom, is one of the symptoms and causes of its becoming a rather dehumanised and scler sclerotic, inhuman system, which it was never meant to be. Great, thank you very much. Now, I'm going to ask you all to answer these um, uh, fairly quickly. Um, uh, Lona, would you like to address the... Uh, it's, it's, it's not just uh, shifting the culture, it's also about uh, shifting the organisational practice. OK, one of the difficulties, of course, is that the NHS has to deal with all comers. It has to deal with the most terrible trauma and if you take stuff like the, the Air Ambulance, Ambulance Services, A&E, really, really complex, right down, right through a range, and then you've got people with complex comorbidities, and then you've got people who believe that they're ill with one thing when actually there's something else going on. So there's a, it's, it's all comers, and somehow it's got to match to that to be flexible enough. The problem with any rigid system is it'll work for that area, but it doesn't necessarily transpose across. An example that came to mind of checklists is that the air ambulance for anaesthetising at the roadside have a checklist which is like an airline pilot's, and absolutely right that they do. So they have a kind of standard protocol that they work through, bang, 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 bang. In my line of business, if I had a standardised protocol, I would miss out on all the complex problems that my patients are bringing from the emotional domain and the social domain as well as all of the, the concerns that they have. So what applies in one area doesn't in another. The other thing uh, that just struck me listening earlier on and through the, through, um, the discussion is that when, when we give letters to our patients, then it stops inappropriate writing because the patients get the letter. You have to think twice because the patient's going to get a copy of that letter. I think the patients should have copies of their notes if they want to. I don't have a problem with that at all. I think it might stop some of the long waffle that gets written in case notes. And my big bugbear is the way that we use and don't use emails. Healthcare professionals waste an enormous amount of time doing emails every day, which are usually circulars from managers about various different things, and yet we're not using emails nearly enough with patients and we're not using texts with patients. And patients will want to access as fast and text. And recently, having been a patient with a surgeon, he was texting me. I really felt I was looked after and cared for. Short text every couple of days. I knew that I hadn't been forgotten. 
And he would say, text me in two days, left it up to me, text me when you want me to respond, and I had follow-up. And we were doing it with very, very short little sentences on a text, a couple mm-hmm. of minutes, but I felt engaged as a patient. Christina, do you think the proliferation of uh, jargon and management speak in the NHS has been dehumanising? Well, I mean, I think it's a problem in the whole world, really. Um, (laughs) Personally, I just think people can speak English and what's wrong with that is a perfectly nice language and keep your words short. But, um, I mean, I I agree with you. I I now get my correspondence copied to me, and it's lovely. You know, it's respectful, uh, you know, Miss Patterson, blah, blah, blah. You think, yes, that's fine. I have also been had a consultation at, I remember first time, um, and I peered over the desk and I saw a letter saying, Miss Patterson is extremely anxious and usually accompanied by her extremely equally anxious mother. And, and I thought, well, I am quite young and I have to be diagnosed with breast cancer. Am I meant to be, you know, kind of going and smiling? I was really upset. Um, I, I mean, all these things, it's sort of chicken or egg, isn't it? It's very hard to disentangle. I think one is a, you know, a product of... They're all intertwined. And I think if people could just cut through the crap, frankly, and just see a patient, speak English... I mean, personally, I think jargon, as opposed to necessary technical or medical or financial or whatever language, is nearly always a way of self engrandizing, you know, and and of obfuscation. And I also tend to think it's a way for people to make themselves, um, you know, it's kind of trying to make uh, not necessarily complex things sound complicated. And actually, intelligence, I think, is always about trying to make complex things more comprehensible. And it's completely the wrong way around. Totally agree. Yeah, I agree. I think um, you know, giving patients their own uh, records, including them in correspondence, are really simple things that have had a great impact in the areas of healthcare where they've been done, like maternity services and mental health services often. So it's, it should be more widely distributed. Those sorts of things can have a real impact, especially when we struggle to have technology IT systems that can help us. Uh, sorry. Um, the, the, especially when we struggle to have technology and IT that helps us to do it. Um, yes, keep things simple. If you can't say it in a couple of minutes, then it's probably too complicated. Uh, people do hide behind jargon. Of course, there's a medical language that needs to be used, but um, in the right in the right places. I mean, the biggest manifestation of an organisational culture is it is the way that they do things. It is its processes and practices. They are they are one and the same. So, and we can change them. Well, I can see we can go on and on, but I'm very sorry we have run out of uh, time. So uh, let me just uh, thank uh, Natalie Jane McDonald, uh, Laura Finley, and Christina Patterson uh, for their very interesting contributions, and thank uh, you, uh, the audience. Um, let me um, just, uh, before we go, introduce the next panel. Um, uh, very old friend and colleague of mine, Victoria McDonald from Channel 4 News, will be chairing this. Uh, she's one of the most experienced uh, health correspondents uh, we've got in this country. Uh, has worked at uh, Channel 4 News as their health correspondent for about 11 years, and before that, Sunday uh, Telegraph, and has uh, quite rightly won many awards for her work. And uh, she will be uh, 
talk, uh, interviewing um, Stephen Doral MP, who is the chair of the House of Commons Health Select uh, Committee, and that's coming up next. <laughs> 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 is this a private show? Is there something we need to know? <laughs> Thank you very much.